good morning. One of the uh, things that the last six or eight or 10,000 years of human history, give or take, however you like to, to calculate it, one of the things that we have seen during that time is that people are very bad at predicting the future and uh, very bad at keeping promises. You think about the future, uh, just back in October, the date finally came that was predicted somewhat or imagined, if you will, in the movie Back to the Future 2. And in that movie, there were going to be uh, hoverboards and sneakers that uh, tie themselves by themselves and uh, men wearing two neckties at a time. And they completely missed it. What they, what they missed was the future of 2015 where everybody would be just kind of walking around like this down the sidewalk running into each other. But uh, there, there have been a number of things over the past. In fact, one of the things that's kind of fun to look at is looking at the future as seen in the past. And, and people get it wrong all the time. Uh, we still have ice caps uh, on the North Pole. We still have ice up there. Uh, we don't have flying cars. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to like to look at magazines like Popular Mechanics or Popular Science, and they would say, the amazing new world of 1980, and things like that. And that stuff just never seemed to happen. The, the world of the future at the 1939 World's Fair. All these kind of glorious worlds that were predicted never happened. At the same time, there were predictions on the future or pictures of the future that were written about that we can be grateful didn't happen. Uh, in 1948, George Orwell wrote the novel 1984, and it was a terrible, oppressive time uh, written about in that book. Uh, so we can be glad that that didn't happen. But all these predictions of the future from people either end up being utopian, meaning they're just way beyond belief, and everybody is uh, holding hands and uh, teaching the world to sing in perfect harmony, or it's just a terrible dystopian, meaning just awful and bad, like uh, 1984 or Fahrenheit 451 or whatever kind of future novel you'd want to talk about. But promises are another thing that, that people are very, very bad at. Um, a couple months ago when I was traveling, I stopped, I was staying nearby there and stopped in at the FDR mansion and presidential library. And there are a lot of artifacts there from World War II, and you think about things that happened then. You think about a promise that came from, uh, as Neville Chamberlain came back from the Munich treaties in 1938, and he comes back with a piece of paper, and he says, I have here in my hand peace in our time. And, you know, 18 months later, the world was beginning to be at war. All kinds of promises from people haven't been kept. Um, I know we were promised less expensive health insurance and lower taxes many times, and those things just haven't happened. But the thing that we can be sure of is the things that God says will happen and the things that God promises will come. He's got a track record showing it. We're going to see part of that today. But what God promises will happen. And so with this being, as Ken mentioned, uh, uh, the beginning part of the Advent season, looking at the promises of a coming Messiah is a worth thing to look at. We see this throughout the prophets. Uh, we see it even, as, as Ken mentioned in the prayer today, back in Genesis 3.15, that there would be a seed of the woman who would come to crush the serpent, that promise of a Messiah to straighten things out and usher in a people to be his own possession has been promised. 
And while we may seem to be in an era that many of us would consider bad leadership, bad leadership by people is not limited to our time either. This has been going on back, 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 all the way back through human history. We see that even in the passage we heard today. Lots of references uh, throughout Jeremiah and throughout all the prophets to bad shepherds over the people and bad rulers and people who were wicked and ruled badly. And one of those today is in our text in Jeremiah. So why don't we take a moment and kind of set the scene here. Who exactly was Jeremiah? We could spend, obviously, weeks on that. We won't today. Couldn't spend weeks today anyway, but you you know where I'm going with that. Jeremiah was called to speak to the people of Jerusalem. And it was during a time of, of actual revival under King Josiah. And so Jeremiah got the call. And he wrote, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Let me pause right there. I hadn't thought about this. But as I told Daniel this morning when I ran into him downstairs, all kinds of things were coming to me. Uh, Let's remember that. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Think, Think about that when people talk about the life of the unborn. Anyway, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born... I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah was called from before he was born to be one to speak as a prophet. And he continued to speak to them during that city's final fall to the Babylonians. His task was to deliver the message to Jerusalem that the fall of Jerusalem was not due to any lack on God's part, but due entirely to the unfaithfulness that Judah had shown toward God. They'd listened to to false prophets instead of true ones. Jeremiah did give them some hope, though. He foretold a return from exile and that there would be an everlasting covenant, this new covenant in which God's people would at last embrace his covenant in their hearts. And Israel and Judah, which had split many years before, would finally be reunited reunited and fulfill their calling to bring light to the world. And so let's look at that promise. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. This is in Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And what a great promise that is. Talk about promises being broken, promises not kept. Do you remember in Exodus, at the foot of Mount Sinai. And 
Moses has the two tablets, and I don't know if they're great big ones like uh, Charlton Heston had portraying him in the Ten Commandments, but he had the, the law of God in his, his hands. And you remember what the people said when he read the law to them? They all raised their hands and said, this we shall do. And uh, that lasted a few minutes maybe. Uh, we just are not good at keeping promises, but God is in transforming individuals and transforming his church. He gives them new hearts. But this whole book of Jeremiah is really kind of like a scrapbook, an anthology, a, a collection of writings drawn from the whole lifetime of Jeremiah. Uh, sermons he gave, uh, details, sort of, sort of like if you kept a scrapbook of news clippings and writings and so forth. Well... How did Judah get to this place? You know, here God had given the law to Israel. They had come into the land, yet things had turned very wrong. Uh, He had the kings of Israel. You remember about this. First Saul ruling for 40 years. And then God took the throne from him and gave it to David. And David ruled for 40 years. And then Solomon succeeded David, built the temple, and then he fell into idolatry despite warnings given centuries earlier back in the book of Deuteronomy knowing that kings would be coming along and that they needed some guidelines to follow. What did Solomon do that, uh, that Deuteronomy through the word of God through Moses said? Well, he gathered many horses and chariots for himself, gathered many wives, 700 wives and concubines. Remember we talked about that in uh, junior high Sunday school class a few years ago and, and uh, one of the young folks said, you know, how could he how could he deal with 700 wives? He said, said, even if he had lunch with a different one and supper with a different one every day, it would take two years to, to see all of them. And, I mean, and that's just only the beginnings of his trouble. But all these women brought in from foreign places who worshipped uh, false gods really turned Solomon from God. And that's when things started to really go downhill uh, from his offspring and beyond. The kingdom ended up splitting. This is uh, kind of a map to remind you. The lower part in red, Judah. We have a little pointer thing here, but I don't know how you use it. So anyway, uh, oh, here we go. Judah down here and Israel up here ended up splitting. You had uh, Judah being ruled under Solomon's wicked son, Rehoboam, and the northern tribes under Jeroboam. And then Israel ended up falling in 722 B.C., they were carried off into, into captivity. They suffered under a series of bad kings. I was looking to put a chart up here. I found a chart that was pretty interesting. But uh, just to summarize it, one column was all the kings of Israel. The other column was what kind of a king they were. And it was either bad, very bad, or wicked. It was just one after another who was terrible. And finally... After they turned from God, Assyria carried them off. Judah had a similar decline, but it wasn't totally a a, a litany of bad kings. Mostly bad kings, a few good ones. One of the good ones was Josiah, and that was near the end of Judah as a kingdom. And beginning as king at the age of eight, Josiah presided over some revival, and in the 18th year of his reign, he funded the repair of the temple. You may remember this from 2 Kings 22. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. 
They had found the book of the law, the books, uh, the writings of Moses, those five books. They had found those there in the temple during the time of restoring the temple, and they'd been lost to the people for years. So the king tore his clothes just in, in utter uh, despair or mourning. And the, the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam, and Akbor, and Shaphan, and Uzziah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they talked with her, and she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who you sent to me, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. They had abandoned God. They found the word and found out what was coming to them because they had abandoned the word. And then the last one, the last king was Zedekiah. He was set up as sort of a puppet king under Babylon's Nebuchadnezzar in 597 B.C. Thirteen years later, Jerusalem would be destroyed. So the first 22 chapters or so of Jeremiah is all these warnings of these things that are going to come, trying to alert the people uh, to turn from their wicked ways. But then Jeremiah would have some words of hope. And one of the words of hope was that this captivity, this exile, would only be one to last 70 years. In uh, verse 10 of chapter 29, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So after the warning, some hope, and certainly the hope we saw in chapter 31. So now uh, I'd like to get into the, the text we have for today, but first a word about sheep. All right, here's a, here's a flock of sheep. Uh, Smart-looking folks, aren't they? <laughs> uh, if you ever... Now, obviously, we have God's Word to explain to us that that God created things. But if you ever wanted to have an evidential argument against evolution, all you have to do is look at sheep. Sheep are not very bright. Sheep are fairly defenseless. Um, Sheep, I I was talking to a friend yesterday, talking about a lamb getting caught in the thicket. And when they get caught, they just get more and more caught the more they struggle to get out, and they need somebody to help them out. And if they are just left to their own and not sheared, what happens then? This, this was found in Australia about, uh, well, earlier this year, a sheep that had been lost for three years. They said this is about 60 pounds of wool. They said they were able to make 30 sweaters from this sheep. So I don't think that it is 
any coincidence, obviously it's not, it's providence that God created the sheep and that God uses sheep to point to his people because who are we without God? We are dumb, we are helpless, we can do nothing without him. And so, you know, when we look at sheep and think about ourselves, we know exactly why we need a shepherd. Well, first in uh, chapter 23, Jeremiah talks about the bad shepherds. And he uses that word that should alert us anytime we see it in Scripture. Woe! Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. This is initially an indictment of of Judah's kings. Most of them had turned from shepherding the people well, and they had turned people from the Lord. In fact, uh, over the course of hundreds of years, the word of God had been completely lost until they found it there in the restoration of the temple. And Jeremiah, as I mentioned, those first 22 chapters, other indictments to the shepherds. For the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. Or in chapter 22, the wind shall shepherd all your shepherds and your lovers shall go into captivity. Then you will be ashamed and confounded because of all your evil. Or in Ezekiel 34, as we maintain the theme of shepherds, Ezekiel writes, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd. Uh, let's make, uh, let me get you on the same place here. Uh, all right. As I live, de- all right, here we go. Sorry about that. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and you have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. So the shepherds, the leaders of Israel, were devouring and misusing the people. 
And as we look at what was going on there, I also want to look at application for today. We have bad shepherds today. Not just people who are bad leadership, but bad people, bad leaders, bad shepherds in position in churches. What kind of those bad shepherds? Well, one of them is church leaders, pastors who have abandoned the gospel. We heard this morning about, uh, in Sunday school, about times when you will face opposition. Well, one way for a church not to face opposition is to not preach the gospel, to ignore that, and tell people things that make them feel good about themselves instead of pointing them to Christ. That's one way that there are bad shepherds. Sheep not being fed, not hearing the word of God, but hearing maybe platitudes and things like that. A, a church that I attended and was a member of uh, many years ago before coming to ECF, when we'd hear a sermon on Sunday morning, we were more likely to hear about what a columnist in the newspaper had written or some comedian or something like that. And other than the scripture reading in the liturgy, there would not be the word of God opened up. So the sheep there were not being fed. Other times, sheep can be beaten down. And I know that that is even the situation for some of you here who have found refuge in a, in a church where grace is central. But maybe you were under leadership that was very authoritarian and very heavy-handed. Or maybe in a situation where somebody might maybe have uh, a word of knowledge and, and you were told to do something that might even be unbiblical. Those are ways also where there's bad shepherding. But this isn't even a new thing. And I, I dug this up and actually found out that this quote, long time ago, they, they started attributing it to Charles Spurgeon, but it was actually a student of his, Archibald Brown. And it's just uh, three paragraphs. Could have been written today, except maybe the language is a little bit more polished than we tend to see nowadays. An evil is in the professed camp of the Lord, so gross in its impudence that the most short-sighted can hardly fail to notice it during the past few years. It has developed at an abnormal rate, even for evil. It has worked like leaven until the whole lump ferments. The devil has seldom done a cleverer thing than hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view to winning them. From speaking out as the Puritans did, the church has gradually toned down her testimony then winked at and excused the frivolities of the day. Then she tolerated them in her borders. And now she's adopted them under the plea of reaching the masses. My first contention is that providing amusement for the people is nowhere spoken of in the scriptures as a function of the church. If it is a Christian work, why did not Christ speak of it? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark 16:15. That is clear enough. So it would have been if he had added and provide amusement for those who do not relish the gospel. No such words, however, to be found. It did not seem to occur to him. So indeed, much like that book of the law was lost in the temple and found during the time of Josiah, in many of our churches today, the truth of the gospel has been lost. And those churches really, and quite, quite to be quite honest, have cease to be churches if they no longer preach the gospel. So bad shepherds then, bad shepherds now. But then Jeremiah points us to the good shepherds. 
Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. So this time was coming that he promised there would be good shepherds and good leaders to gather people back to the fold. He would be gathering back a remnant who survived, but more than just a remnant of surviving uh, members of Israel and Judah, a remnant of people who were faithful, a remnant who believed. Faithful ones that he's gathering together, just as now as Christ is gathering a remnant from the people of this planet to be his uh, for perpetuity. And as the good shepherds would be put together, a good shepherd over them would come. We see in John chapter 10 where Jesus asserts that he's the one talked about here by Jeremiah. John chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Jesus right here is showing that God's promise was faithful and his prediction and prophecy was true. Later in that chapter, he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. That's the bad shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there'll be one flock, one shepherd. Certainly Jesus as the good shepherd gives us the example on what the shepherds, the under shepherds who will look over his flock should be like. They should be ones like any of us should be to lay down our lives and to serve one another. You know, the, as we're told, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the call to the shepherds, not the opposite, not a shepherd who would get fat off the sheep. I think we can see that example again when we see people getting enriched by pretending to preach the gospel. People, uh, some of the, the televangelists that we see, who end up with these lives of riches. Or, or even, uh, even we think about a friend and brother of ours who was part of this church. Many of you remember Seth Reynoso. Seth came out of a city neighborhood and out of a prosperity gospel church where the people of the neighborhood were very, very poor. And they were being preached to that if they followed this teaching of this, of this church, that they then would have riches and then they would prosper. And what happened? That flock was fleeced, and that that pastor, that so-called pastor, was taking whatever these people could come and contribute far beyond what they probably should have, and enriching himself. And we we even saw stories uh, in the paper a couple of years ago about an inner-city uh, church pastor preaching this so-called prosperity gospel, who had this amazing house in Penfield with cars and multiple garages and so forth. All a false gospel, all self-serving, all fleecing the flock, just, just in the way that, that Jeremiah talked about. But good news was coming, and there would be a righteous branch. 
And as he continues in verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David. So I'm sorry, here we go. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Well, this righteous branch had been promised a few years before also. If we go back to 2 Samuel 7, there's the time when David is near the end of his life. And Samuel passes the word on, when your days are fulfilled, actually I think it's Nathan there, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That throne of David established forever. And I think you know where we're going with that, who's on that throne. Where in Isaiah 11, a similar promise, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. That branch, that shoot from the stump of Jesse, Jesse, David's father. And the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew and Luke show him to be descended from David. In Matthew 1, chapter 6, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and that continues along till Jesus. Or in Luke, as we work backwards, I guess I don't have that one in there. The son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, etc., etc. In there, David, in the genealogy for Jesus. And he is the one who is the righteous one, the one who is our righteousness. This verse is the gospel really in one verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he, God, God made Jesus to be sin, made Jesus to take on our sin, take on the sins of the world upon him, so that in him, so that when we trust in him, when our hearts have been transformed by him, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are clothed with that righteousness. The righteousness of God gets credited to our account. That really, like I said, the gospel in one verse. And so I'm compelled really to ask at this point, 
Is Jesus Christ your righteousness? Have you turned to Him to trust Him for your righteousness, understanding that you have no righteousness of your own? We were born humans after the fall of our initial parents. And all of us have been born as sinful people. We've been, we sin because we were born that way. But the new birth is offered to those who have turned to Christ. The new birth to regenerate your heart, give you a new heart and take that heart of stone away. And if you haven't trusted Jesus for that, you haven't given this a thought even, if you haven't partaken of this thing that is freely offered to you, now is the time you should do that. Today can be that day. Today, as the scripture says, is the day of your salvation. So I implore you, if you haven't done that, give this serious consideration. Now, in the immediate sense, there was a promise of a return to Jerusalem. But even at that time, the 70 years after the exile, as things were being rebuilt, you can read about this in Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the temple was being rebuilt, the city was being rebuilt, but there was disappointment. The, the temple wasn't the glorious temple that it had been before. It was kind of shabby. You know, they didn't, they didn't call the, this old house guys. They kind of did it themselves, and it was not so great. And there was nobody sitting on the throne of David. So there would be this 500 years of longing until the Messiah would come. And in the final sense, there's also this gathering of a remnant for the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns. A gathering of a remnant from all the nations. And as we heard in John chapter 10, there's still some sheep not of this fold, which is why we're compelled to bring the word of the gospel forth because there are still those who have not heard, still those who would come to believe. And if the Lord shall tarry, there may be generations yet to be born who will have to come to Christ and hear the gospel. But as this passage wraps up, we see a new exodus. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country, and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Now for Israel, it was finally a return. For Israel and Judah, uh, for the people who had been scattered, they were able to be brought back in the land. And those who had been hauled off into exile in Babylon after those seven decades were over, they too could then return to the land. But then there's also a final exodus coming. Just like those people of Israel and Judah who were hauled off into those other lands in those pagan areas, we also, here in this present earth, we are strangers and aliens. We are sojourners and exiles here. We may have an earthly citizenship as citizens of the United States, but our real citizenship is in heaven. In the time when we will be drawn out of these lands here where we're exiled and brought back, will come one day. That return of a remnant to Israel dwelling again in their own land, and then us, finally the land, over the whole earth, a new heavens and a new earth where we will dwell, and we will be God's people. Now with this, all this call and all this talk about shepherds and proper shepherding and, and God's people being like sheep and being helpless without them, 
Is it any wonder that God announced the arrival of Jesus to shepherds? Luke chapter 2. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Amen. That, that good shepherd finally did come to the people. It took 500 years for that promise to happen from the time that Jeremiah gave it. 500 years. Can you think about how long 500 years is? How long that wait and despair was? 500 years ago from now was two years before Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg. That's how long ago 500 years was. It's an amazing amount of time to wait. And it seems like we've been waiting a long time for the Lord to return again, but, but we can be patient. But to recap, first of all, people need the great shepherd. We're like those sheep we looked at before. Now, we can't shear ourselves. We can't feed ourselves. We can't direct ourselves without God's grace for us. Some of that's what they call the common grace, where the rain falls on the just and the unjust. But for us to really, truly live, we need the good shepherd to put new life in us. We know that people can be bad shepherds. We can't predict the future. We can't keep our promises. And the history of the world shows that rulers have been evil for decades. People can be bad shepherds. So a righteous shepherd was needed to bring peace and justice to the world. That righteous shepherd was foretold all the way back from the beginning of Scripture. He was promised and he was looked for. That shepherd was foretold and he came. He came 2,000 years ago. And one day he will return and that great shepherd will lead us home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so, so grateful that your promises are true. We are delighted to know that everything you have foretold has come to pass and those things that you have promised yet will indeed come to pass as well because we know you are trustworthy and faithful and true. We thank you that you've heralded the coming of the Messiah through the prophets and through the writers of the New Testament have heralded his return. We're grateful at this time of year that we can understand the longing that the Israelites had for a Messiah as we still long for the ultimate consummation of things. We thank you for this time we've had together as your people and praise you greatly in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and
Christmas.